Section 1 of La Samoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. La Samoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Chapter 1. Gervaise had waited up for Lantier until two in the morning. Then, shivering from having remained in a thin loose jacket exposed to the fresh air at the window, she had thrown herself across the bed, drowsy, feverish, and her cheeks bathed in tears. For a week past, on leaving the two-headed calf where they took their meals, he had sent her home with the children and never reappeared himself until late at night, alleging that he had been in search of work. That evening, while watching for his return, she thought she had seen him entering the dancing-hall of La Grande Balcony, the ten blazing windows of which lighted up with the glare of a conflagration the dark expanse of the exterior boulevards. And five or six paces behind him she had caught sight of little Adele, a burnisher, who dined at the same restaurant, swinging her hands as if she had just quitted his arm so as not to pass together under the dazzling light of the globes at the door. When, towards five o'clock, Gervaise awoke stiff and sore, she broke forth into sobs. Lantier had not returned. For the first time he had slept away from home. She remained seated on the edge of the bed under the strip of faded chintz which hung from the rod fastened to the ceiling by a piece of string, and slowly with her eyes veiled by tears she glanced around the wretched lodging, furnished with a walnut chest of drawers minus one drawer, three rush-bottomed chairs, and a little greasy table, on which stood a broken water-jug. There had been added for the children an iron bedstead, which prevented anyone getting to the chest of drawers, and filled two-thirds of the room. Gervaise's and Lantier's trunk, wide open in one corner, displayed its emptiness, and a man's old hat right at the bottom almost buried beneath some dirty shirts and socks. Whilst against the walls, above the articles of furniture, hung a shawl full of holes, and a pair of trousers begrimed with mud, the last rags which the dealers in second-hand clothes declined to buy. In the centre of the mantelpiece, lying between two odd zinc candlesticks, was a bundle of pink pawn tickets. It was the best room of the hotel, the first-floor room, looking onto the boulevard. The two children were sleeping side by side with their heads on the same pillow, Claude, aged eight years, was breathing quietly with his little hands thrown outside the coverlet, while Etienne, only four years old, was smiling with one arm round his brother's neck, and barefooted without thinking to again put on the old shoes that had fallen on the floor, she resumed her position at the window, her eyes searching the pavements in the distance. The hotel was situated on the boulevard de la Chapelle, to the left of the Barrière Poissonnière. It was a building of two stories high, painted a red of the colour of wine dregs up to the second floor, and with shutters all rotted by the rain. Over a lamp with starred panes of glass one could manage to read, between the two windows, the words, Hôtel Boncourt, kept by Mossoulier, painted in big yellow letters, several pieces of which the mouldering of the plaster had carried away. The lamp preventing her seeing, Gervaise raised herself on tiptoe, still holding the handkerchief to her lips. She looked to the right, towards the boulevard Rochechouart, 
where groups of butchers in aprons smeared with blood were hanging about in front of the slaughterhouses, and the fresh breeze wafted occasionally a stench of slaughtered beasts. Looking to the left, she scanned a long avenue that ended nearly in front of her, where the white mass of the La Reboussière Hospital was then in course of construction. Slowly from one end of the horizon to the other, she followed the Octroi War, behind which she sometimes heard during night-time the shrieks of persons being murdered, and she searchingly looked into the remote angles, the dark corners black with humidity and filth, fearing to discern there Lantier's body, stabbed to death. She looked at the endless grey wall that surrounded the city with its belt of desolation. When she raised her eyes higher, she became aware of a bright burst of sunlight. The dull hum of the city's awakening already filled the air. Craning her neck to look at the Poissonniere gate, she remained for a time watching the constant stream of men, horses, and carts which flooded down from the heights of Montmartre and La Chapelle, pouring between the two squat octroi lodges. It was like a herd of plodding cattle, an endless throng widened by sudden stoppages into eddies that spilled off the sidewalks into the street, a steady procession of laborers on their way back to work with tools slung over their back and a loaf of bread under their arm. This human inundation kept pouring down into Paris to be constantly swallowed up. Gervaise leaned further out at the risk of falling when she thought she recognized Lantier amongst the throng. She pressed the handkerchief tighter against her mouth, as though to push back the pain within her. The sound of a young and cheerful voice caused her to leave the window. "'So the old man isn't here, Madame Lantier?' "'Why, no, Monsieur Coupeau,' she replied, trying to smile. Coupeau, a zinc worker who occupied a ten-franc room on the top floor, having seen the door unlocked, had walked in, as friends will do. "'You know,' he continued, I'm now working over there in the hospital. Oh, what beautiful May weather, isn't it? The air is rather sharp this morning. And he looked at Gervaise's face red with weeping. When he saw that the bed had not been slept in, he shook his head gently. Then he went to the children's couch where they were sleeping, looking as rosy as cherubs, and lowering his voice he said, Come, the old man's not been home, has he? Oh, don't worry yourself, Madame Lantier, he's very much occupied with politics. When they were voting for Eugène Sue the other day, he was acting almost crazy. He has very likely spent the night with some friends blackguarding crapulous Bonaparte. No, no, she murmured with an effort. You don't think that. I know where Lantier is. You see, we have our little troubles, like the rest of the world. Coupeau winked his eye to indicate that he was not a dupe of this falsehood, and he went off after offering to fetch her milk, if she did not care to go out. She was a good and courageous woman, and might count upon him on any day of trouble. As soon as he was gone, Gervaise again returned to the window. At the barriere, the tramp of the drove still continued in the morning air. Locksmiths in short blue blouses, masons in white jackets, house-painters in overcoats over long smocks. From a distance the crowd looked like a chalky smear of neutral hue, composed chiefly of faded blue and dingy grey. When one of the workers occasionally stopped to light his pipe, the others kept plodding past him, without sparing a laugh or a word to a comrade. With cheeks grey as clay, their eyes were continuously drawn towards Paris, which was swallowing them one by one. 
At both corners of the Rue des Poissonniers, however, some of the men slackened their pace as they neared the doors of the two wine-dealers who were taking down their shutters, and before entering they stood on the edge of the pavement, looking sideways over Paris, with no strength in their arms, and already inclined for a day of idleness. Inside, various groups were already buying rounds of drinks, or just standing around, forgetting their troubles, crowding up the place, coughing, spitting, clearing their throats with sip after sip. Gervaise was watching Père Colomb's wine-shop to the left of the street, where she thought she had seen Lantier, when a stout woman, bareheaded and wearing an apron, called to her from the middle of the roadway. "'Eh, Madame Lantier, you are up very early,' Gervaise leaned out. "'Why, it's you, Madame Bosch. Oh, I've got a lot of work today. Yes, things don't do themselves, do they?' The conversation continued between roadway and window. Madame Bosch was concierge of the building where the two-headed calf was on the ground floor. Gervaise had waited for Lantier more than once in the concierge's lodge so as not to be alone at table with all the men who ate at the restaurant. Madame Bosch was going to a tailor who was late in mending an overcoat for her husband. She mentioned one of her tenants who had come in with a woman the night before and kept everyone awake past three in the morning. She looked at Gervaise with intense curiosity. "'Is Monsieur Lantier there still in bed?' she asked abruptly. "'Yes, he's asleep,' replied Gervaise, who could not avoid blushing. Madame Bosch saw the tears come into her eyes, and, satisfied, no doubt, she turned to go, declaring men to be a cursed lazy set. As she went off, she called back. "'It's this morning you go to the wash-house, isn't it? "'I've something to wash, too. "'I'll keep you a place next to me, and we can chat together.' "'Then, as if moved with sudden pity, she added, "'Oh, my poor little thing, you had far better not remain there. "'You'll take harm. You look blue with cold.' "'Gervais still obstinately remained at the window "'during two mortal hours till eight o'clock. "'Now all the shops had opened. "'Only a few workmen were still hurrying along.' The working girls now filled the boulevard. Metal polishers, milliners, flower sellers, shivering in their thin clothing. In small groups they chatted gaily, laughing and glancing here and there. Occasionally there would be one girl by herself, thin, pale, serious-faced, picking her way along the city wall among the puddles and the filth. After the working girls, the office clerks came past, breathing upon their chilled fingers and munching penny rolls. Some of them are gaunt young fellows in ill-fitting suits, their tired eyes still fogged from sleep. Others are older men, stooped and tottering, with faces pale and drawn from long hours of office work, and glancing nervously at their watches for fear of arriving late. In time the boulevard settled into their usual morning quiet. Old folk came out to stroll in the sun. Tired young mothers in bedraggled skirts cuddled babies in their arms, or sat on a bench to change diapers. Children run, squealing and laughing, pushing and shoving. Then Gervaise felt herself choking, dizzy with anguish, all hopes gone. It seemed to her that everything was ended, even time itself, and that Lantier would return no more. Her eyes vacantly wandered from the old slaughterhouse, foul with butchery and with stench, to the new white hospital, which, through the yawning openings of its ranges of windows, disclosed the naked wards where death was preparing to mow. In front of her, on the other side of the octroi wall, the bright heavens dazzled her with a rising sun, which rose higher and higher over the vast awakening city. 
The young woman was seated on a chair, no longer crying, and with her hands abandoned on her lap, when Lantier quietly entered the room. "'It's you! It's you!' she cried, rising to throw herself upon his neck. "'Yeah, it's me. What of it?' he replied. "'You're not going to begin any of your nonsense, I hope.' He had pushed her aside, then, with a gesture of ill-humour, he threw his black felt hat to the chest of drawers. He was a young fellow of twenty-six years of age, short and very dark, with a handsome figure and slight moustache, which his hand was always mechanically twirling. He wore a workman's overalls and an all-soiled overcoat, which he had belted tightly at the waist, and he spoke with a strong Provençal accent. Gervaise, who had fallen back on her chair, gently complained in short sentences, I've not had a wink of sleep. I feared some harm had happened to you. Where have you been? Where did you spend the night? For heaven's sake, don't do it again, or I shall go crazy. Tell me, your guts, where have you been? Where I had business, of course, he returned, shrugging his shoulders. At eight o'clock I was at La Glaciere with my friend who was to start a hat factory. We sat talking late, so I preferred to sleep there. Now you know I don't like being spied upon, so just shut up. The young woman recommenced sobbing. The loud voices and the rough movements of Lantier, who upset the chairs, had awakened the children. They sat up in bed, half-naked, disentangling their hair with their tiny hands, and hearing their mother weep, they uttered terrible screams, crying also with their scarcely open eyes. "'There's the music!' shouted Lantier furiously. "'I'll warn you, I'll take my hook!' and it will be for good this time. You won't shut up, then good morning I'll return to the place I've just come from. He had already taken his hat from off the chest of drawers, but Gervaise threw herself before him, stammering, No, no. And she hushed the little one's tears with her caresses, smoothed their hair, and soothed them with soft words. The children suddenly quieted, laughing on their pillow, amused themselves by punching each other. The father, however, without even taking off his boots, had thrown himself on the bed, looking worn out, his face bearing signs of having been up all night. He did not go to sleep. He lay with his eyes wide open, looking round the room. "'That's a mess here,' he muttered, and, after observing Gervaise a moment, he malignantly added, "'Don't you even wash yourself now?' Gervaise was twenty-two, tall and slim, with fine features, but she had already begun to show the strain of her hard life. She seemed to have aged ten years from the hours of agonized weeping. Lantier's mean remarks made her mad. "'You're not fair,' she said spiritedly. "'You well know I do all I can. It's not my fault we find ourselves here. I would like to see you with two children in a room where there's not even a stove to heat some water.' When we arrived in Paris, instead of squandering your money, you should have made a home for us at once, as you promised. Listen, Lantier exploded. You cracked the nut with me. It doesn't become you to sneer at it now. Apparently not listening, Gervaise went on with her own thought. If we work hard, we can get out of this hole we're in. Madame Fossonier, the laundress en rue Neuve, will stop me on Monday. If you work with your friend from La Glaciere, in six months we'll be doing well. We'll have enough for decent clothes and a place we can call our own, but we'll have to stick with it and work hard. Lantier turned over towards the wall, looking greatly bored. Then Gervaise lost her temper. Yes, that's it. I know the love of work doesn't trouble you much. You're bursting with ambition. 
You want to be dressed like a gentleman. You don't think me nice enough, do you, now that you've made me pawn all my dresses? Now listen, August. I didn't intend to speak of it. I would have waited a bit longer, but I know where you spent the night. I saw you enter the Grand Balcony with that trollop Adele. Ah, you choose them well. She's a nice one, she is. She does well to put on the airs of a princess. She's been the ridicule of every man who frequents the restaurant. At a bound, Lantier sprung from the bed. His eyes had become as black as ink in his pale face. With this little man, rage blew like a tempest. Yes, yes, of every man who frequents the restaurant, repeated the young woman. Madame Bosch intends to give them notice, she and her long stick of a sister, because they've always a string of men after them on the staircase. Lantier raised his fists. Then, resisting the desire of striking her, he seized hold of her by the arms, shook her violently, and sent her sprawling upon the bed of the children, who recommenced crying. And he lay down again, mumbling, like a man resolving on something that he previously hesitated to do. "'You don't know what you've done, Gervaise. You've made a big mistake, you'll see.'" End of First Part of Chapter One Recording by David Lazarus